You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Limit Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me in the studio today is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. What's going on? I'm doing all right, Chris. It's been a while since we've sat down in the room together here to record one of these. It has. Busy duck season. Everyone's busy with work, trying to squeeze some duck hunts in. Um, but no, it's good to be in the studio with you. Uh, today's show, we are going to do some, you know, we're going to just kind of discuss some amazing waterfowl facts and and this is one of the most popular pieces of content that we've had on our website and it's been on there for a while uh, but some of these facts are just just cool and i thought that you know maybe if you and i could just sit down and chat about some of these cool little facts it'll give people something to talk about in the duck blind hey you know you know what the smallest did you know yeah did you know did you know this so it's rather than kind of when we did our myth busters you know episode this is kind of just fun facts for you to share. But before we kick that off, you had something you wanted to bring up. I did. And we probably don't do as much of this as we need to. We've The podcast has grown over the past, what have we been doing this now, three years, three mm-hmm. and a half, something like that. And so we certainly appreciate all our loyal listeners, as they say, and we want to thank you for that. And the other thing that I guess we probably need to do a little bit more often is ask people to take some time to rate the podcast. Uh, and if you're feeling really uh, really froggy, 
go ahead and review the podcast as well. Those are important from a kind of podcast visibility standpoint. And think about it this way. When you do those things, you are contributing to wetlands conservation and the message that Ducks Unlimited is trying to get out there. So take some time. Uh, now stop this episode and rate and review the podcast and and keep listening keep listening to 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 it we appreciate everybody's support yeah absolutely and it is important you know getting that support people rate review um definitely we want you guys to subscribe to it trying to Um, trying to get inside all those algorithms and how they work right there you go you know trying to fight the system you you, got to play the game if you're in it you got to play the game you got to rate review Get that that visibility up there. Absolutely. Well, cool. You know, that's a good reminder for everybody. But let's go ahead and kick this show off. Let's, uh, you know, we're going to start, I'm going to start out with one. And this is, uh, you know, something that you and I have even talked about, you know, even not specifically, but just like, you know, what ducks eat is always a good conversation. And I got a cool fact here, and this is called high protein diet. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of read through this fact, and then we can chat about it, I guess. So, Female wood ducks must ingest 75 grams, that's 2.6 ounces of invertebrates to obtain enough protein and minerals to produce one egg. To acquire these nutrients, the bird must consume more than 300 invertebrates an hour for eight straight hours. That's pretty, that's a lot of invertebrates these things are eating. So kind of explain what this process is and and, and why they have to eat so much. The first thing that, that comes to mind, and it's probably going to be true on a lot of these, is I'd like to see the spreadsheet or the scratch pad that Mike Checkett and our other biologists used to to calculate some of these things. They would have gotten this information from published studies mm-hmm. of, of wood ducks or other uh, other ducks as we go through here. But, you know, th- this is like a, an example. Kind of given a certain type of invertebrate that has a certain protein content in it, it would equate to this. And, of course, you can calculate the protein content of an egg, uh, and those types of studies have been done. And so in, from that, when, once you get that those pieces of information, it's kind of easy to do the math and calculate. Yeah. You need this much protein to produce an egg. And if there's this much protein in this type of invertebrate, then they have to do this and this yeah. and this. And so, yeah, protein is important for a lot of different reasons in waterfowl. One of the, I mean, feather structures, egg production, muscles, all those types of things. Um, I will kind of give a promo here on on this episode. We have an article, forthcoming article in the Ducks Unlimited magazine. The I think the working title is Movable Feast. Uh, the authors on that are Dr. Joe Lancaster and Dr. Ryan mm-hmm. Askren. And I've I've seen a draft of that article. They did a fantastic job. Oh, so that should be in the March-April issue. March-April. It's a yeah. fantastic article and talking about the how the diets of waterfowl differ across mm-hmm. species, but then also how they differ throughout the annual cycle. And this is kind of relevant here to this because it's high protein that a lot of waterfowl shift their diet to a higher protein content as they get closer to that breeding season. Then yeah. there's some difference between the way ducks do it and geese do it and kind of depending on their, their egg investment strategy. And uh, we've capital versus income breeders. We've talked about some of that mm-hmm. with past guests. And so, um, yeah, it w- that's just uh, 300 invertebrates an hour for eight hours in this particular example. That That is that is a lot. Now, that's a if, lot. if they get a hold of a bigger invertebrate, yeah. or, you know. There's probably so many variables this thing. That's right. Yeah. But these are just cool little fun facts. That's I mean, right. that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of invertebrates to produce you know, one egg. So it's pretty impressive. And and I'll also say 
never pass up an opportunity to emphasize the importance of a balanced diet. I did air quotes there. People can't, can't <laughs> see that. A balanced diet for waterfowl. Carbohydrates, energy in the form of various seeds and, and agricultural crops are super important during to help fuel that migration. But invertebrates that provide the protein, that provide all these other essential minerals and nutrients come from uh, come from these other more natural habitats yeah. or nat more natural vegetation communities. And so that's why repeatedly when we talk about how to create a landscape that's attractive and suitable to waterfowl, it needs to encompass a lot of different types of habitats so that it produces that balanced diet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll go on to the next one here, and you know we've got a long list of these, and and people can visit this on ducks.org and and go through all. Of them. We're not going to go through every single little fun fact, but this fact here is called supersize, and this is just kind of explaining that the largest of North America's waterfowl is the trumpeter swan, and a trumpeter swan can tip the scales at more than thirty five pounds, um, weighing as much as six pounds. The common eider is the largest duck species in the northern hemisphere, so you've got the largest. So the largest waterfowl species is the trumpeter swan, uh, more than 35 pounds, and the largest duck species is the common eider. So you ever hunted eider? I have. Yeah, I have. Did you get you a common eider? I did. Yeah, I hunted up in Maine several years not. ago. It's a not. that's a fun little hunt. You should do it. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, so this is pretty cool. You know, you can measure largest based uh, using a number of different metrics. Whenever I first saw the title of this, I, I thought about a fast food restaurant, you know, supersize it, but <laughs> yeah. uh, that's actually not what it's about. So yeah, it, it's uh, trumpeter swans, massive, massive bird. Um, I don't have a whole lot of experience with common eiders, as I just talked about. The other thing that I did look up here, one of the other ways that people measure the size of birds is uh, like wingspan. Mm -hmm. Do you know, this is a little, I'll throw this on you here. Do you, do know, you know which bird species in North America has the largest wingspan? Not, not talking just waterfowl, hmm. but bird. I don't. A golden eagle. Oh, you're close. California condor. Oh, I almost yeah. said condor. It's like 11 too. and a half feet or something like that. I thought that, that was Just the first incredible. thing that popped in my head and I changed my mind. And, you know, whenever I looked into this, I I thought that trumpeter swan might give those, those birds a run for their money, but I think the trumpeter swan wingspan is six and a half, seven and a half feet, something like that. Mm -hmm. the, the exact figure is kind of escaping me right now, but you got a California condor, 11 and a half, I think is what it was. Wow. Crazy. Massive. I mean, that's... Uh, and then, then the golden eagle and bald eagle are up there as well. Uh, white pelican is is up there also. But yeah, a lot of cool stuff. Um, you know, in terms of the just how how large those uh, those birds are. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of people assume that the swan is probably the largest waterfowl species. But you know, with the common eiders not being uh, as common to waterfowl hunters throughout the country, uh, they probably don't have the idea of how big those common otters are. Yeah. So that's a cool little fun fact for you to, for someone to share in the duck blind. Yeah. One of the other species of waterfowl that I find sort of deceptive in terms of its size and maybe mass once you get it in hand relative to its size when you see it on the wing are whistling ducks. Mm -hmm. You ever had your hands yeah. on, a, on a whistling mm -hmm. duck? You know, it's like you would think they're a rather uh, heavy bird, but, but in fact you get them in hand, they're, they're, 
tiny, you know, kind of feel tiny. I, I don't actually know what the mass on that is. I probably should have looked that up, but I would guess somewhere between a gadwall and a mallard. I mean, they're not, yeah. but but they take up a lot of space. They you look know? big, yeah, they for do. sure. The next one we've got here is, this is another wood duck. I guess I I don't even know factoid. what to refer Factoid. There you go. I was going to call them amazing fun facts. Fun, foul facts. Um, so this was called Double Duty. And wood ducks are the only North American waterfowl known to regularly raise two broods in one year. Uh, mild temperatures enable wood ducks in the south to begin nesting as early as late January. And studies of southern wood ducks have found that more than 11% of females may produce two broods in a single season. Now, you know, this time of year, we're pushing mid-January right now. So people keep that in mind. If you're, you know, monitoring or, or putting up wood duck boxes, you should probably go ahead and get out there and start cleaning them out this time of year, especially in the South. So, right. um, you know, you had a couple comments on this as well. Well, it, it's just that it's not very common. Mm -hmm. uh, it Double brooding, where they, they produce two broods of, uh, of, of ducklings. One of the other, maybe, I'm trying to think, I don't, I don't even, I don't think there's any record of model ducks doing it. You think about other ducks that would have the opportunity to to, to do mm -hmm. so. Model ducks would be in there because they they breed at such extreme southern locations, the Gulf Coast and then Peninsular Florida. I mean, I would imagine there's some that will that that will do that, but there's not a lot not a lot of records of it. Wood ducks are also a bit easier to study because they're they take so readily to artificial nest boxes. Yeah. I mean that's why we know so much about them is that they're it's easy to gain access to the nesting hens, to the um uh, and to the eggs and and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it's that it, it just there are a lot of and I guess we should should clarify this is not to be confused with renesting. We're mm -hmm. actually talking about birds that are um, that are able to raise two broods. Now there's kind of different variations of that, and I'll confess to not knowing exactly the answer here. But like I I don't know if as it's defined here, it means that they that the hens took that brood to completion, like to, to flight stage. I think it does. I think they're like true double brooding. I think that's what it refers to. Mm -hmm. There's some instances where a, which, and these would be a little more common where a hen can hatch a clutch of eggs, take the broods to the water, and then they all get gobbled up by a largemouth bass <laughs> or cottonmouth or alligator or something. And then they would go and re-nest and, and yeah. do another brood. I'm not sure if there's a technical difference in, in, in that. Um, a lot of my, my kind of research science counterparts out there you're free to send me an email correct me or, or or educate me on that but true double brooding i think would be raising two flight stage two broods in the in the same year and that's just incredibly rare because of the time and energy that it um that it takes but uh re-nesting is something a little bit um yeah it, it's certainly more common across the waterfowl across duck species anyway. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, that's just a good reminder that we need to do a species profile on the wood duck. We have we not do. we've not done that yet. So. Yeah, I know. I've got I've got my 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 person in mind just need to get get him here. Awesome. So the next one is called Sound Carries. So both common and Barrow's golden eyes are often called whistlers. On cold, windless days, the resonant whistling sound produced by golden eyes rapidly beating wings can be heard more than a half a mile away. That's a pretty cool fact. It so is. It's not actually them vocally whistling. It's actually their wings beat. Yeah. Correct? Uh, yep. And this is uh, another 
group of species, a couple of species here that I don't have a whole lot of you know, firsthand experience with, either doing research or hunting or even being in places that uh, where they're they are commonly found. This one was interesting because just this past week, I received a text message from Derek Christians, our campus mm-hmm. waterfowl uh, leader, and he was out in Idaho, I think, and they were having a, the the folks that he was hunting with having a conversation about golden eyes and he sent me a text asking how do they make that whistling sound you know mm-hmm. with their uh, how do they vocalize and make that whistling sound I'm like well i don't actually know let me look into that a little bit <laughs> so, so i was able to uh, I, I did and it's like yeah it's it's the wings that actually yeah. create the wind going across the wings that create the whistling sound not a vocalization so just sort of a, an interesting um yeah, another interesting intersection of the things that we're talking about and a question that I get from people every now and then. Yeah, I'm sure that the, we always joke around that the uh, the common golden eye hen is probably the least identified duck. We always get emails like, hey, what's this duck? Most of the time, if somebody doesn't know what the duck is, it's typically a hen golden eye common because people don't see a ton of them yeah. and then they get it in hand and they're like, what is this? Yeah, so... That's that's a that's a good little fun fact as well. The idea that wind moving across the wings of birds will create a sound is probably shouldn't be a foreign concept to mm-hmm. waterfowl hunters or dove hunters. Doves have yeah. a very distinctive sound when that's exactly <laughs> that whenever my dove they flying away sound. Whenever they uh, whenever they they fly off, there is there's also there's a video out there. Uh, to, for whether it be TikTok, Instagram, uh, Matt Harrison. I'd seen it a few months ago. Matt Harrison actually came across it just last week and sent it to me. It was just an amazing video demonstrating the differences, the difference in sound that is created by different birds, you hmm. know, whenever they're in flight. Yeah. And I forget this, I forget the species that they're comparing. Uh, one is, I'll, I'm just going to make some up. Maybe one is a pigeon. Maybe one is uh, some type of, I forget what, was some type of passerine, let's say. And then the final one, which is the coolest part of it, is an owl. I think it's a barn owl, if I'm rem- remembering this correctly. It's been a while since I watched the video. The, the point of it was to demonstrate exactly how quiet the wings of owls are. It's mm. astounding. So folks should do themselves a favor and and go out, go online. And I think if you Google something like how does an owl fly silently or something like that, that, that video will probably come up and and it's remarkable, but yeah. it just kind of shows you. I mean, owls are just like incredibly silent, and of course, you know they're predatory birds at night, and they they need to be. Yeah, absolutely, owls are awesome. So the next one, and the funny thing is, we did this one as a fun fact on TikTok not too long ago. Our social media coordinator kind of created a video around this, and it just blew up and had like a million views. Um, but it's a cool little fun fact. So this is called Gold Rush. And so, waterfowl ingest small particles of stone, gravel, and sand, which are kept in their gizzard to help them grind up hard foods like grain, acorns, and clams. In 1911, a gold rush was spurred in western Nebraska after hunters found small gold nuggets in the gizzards of ducks they had shot. The source of these gold nuggets, however, was never discovered. So, they're just out there picking up gold somewhere and spurred an entire gold rush. So so, I thought that was pretty cool. So my question is, do you believe this one? No, not really. I mean, 1911, how many waterfowl hunters, I mean, maybe they were maybe they did that because they you think they were eating the gizzards? I mean, at that time, think about that. Probably. 1911, market hunting days, still some of that going on. 
Maybe so. How I'm you, trying to think of how a, could you, you duck hunt in 1911? You couldn't even post your Instagram picture of your big pile <laughs> of ducks, you know? Well, yeah. Duh. So it kind of leads my brain down an interesting road in 1911. I, I, I don't, did they use the gizzards in, I would imagine they did, you know, if yeah. you're a commercial, if you're a commercial hunter, you're going to use every part of the bird that you can. So that would make sense. Whenever I first read this, I'm like, how many people are out there? 1911 actually cleaning the gizzards of the ducks that they're harvesting. But if it's, you know, market hunting kind of based over, there's still some yeah. of that going on at that time. I know and they were trying think. to, they were trying to kind of wind that down at that time. But yeah. You guys think there's a lot of people out there kind of on the edge of a gold rush at that time. No. You know? Yeah. I mean, people are looking a lot, probably a lot more than they are now. Maybe so. You know, so maybe that's what it was. I think this is just a cool fun fact. I don't know. Again, it would you? be. And if anybody out there knows anything more about it, Hey, shoot us an email. Yeah, absolutely. Do you podcast at ducks.org? <laughs> so just don't, just don't have it come from the Ducks Unlimited website. We can probably find that ourselves. Yeah, anything we can else find on there. That. Before we get into deadbeat ducks, let's go ahead and take a quick break, uh, and we'll come right back and we'll we'll do five or six more of these cool facts. That sounds good to me. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. everybody we're back and we have amazing waterfowl facts i've got my co-host dr mike brazier here kind of breaking down some of these fun facts the last one we just did the gold rush he does not believe he thinks that was a lie i uh, wouldn't go that far <laughs> you questioned I'm a, I'm a little, that's your job yeah, i'm skeptical so the next one's called deadbeat ducks and i'll just go ahead and read through this and then you can kind of uh break it down on on however you want so several waterfowl, including redheads, canvasbacks, wood ducks, and ruddy ducks, hooded mergansers, and snow geese, 
pursue a breeding strategy known as nest parasitism, which we've just talked on the podcast before about this. And this is where females lay eggs in the nests of other females of the same species. Some wood duck nest boxes have been found with as many as 50 eggs laid by multiple hens. Female red, redheads regularly lay eggs in the nests of other duck species. In one study conducted on Manitoba's Delta Marsh, more than 90% of canvasback nests contained redhead eggs. The unsuspecting foster hens raised the redhead ducklings as their own. So, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. especially with redheads. We ha- had a conversation about uh, black-bellied whistling ducks. We've had some uh, discussions about this nest parasitism, but what did you want to add to this? Well, the first was what you just did, that, that black-bellied whistling ducks are not in this list. They are one of the, becoming one of the most well-known uh, um, nest parasitism, uh, parasitizing uh, species, because they're becoming more common, widespread, uh, abundant. But yes, all these others, um, especially redheads, wood ducks, um, hoodermergansers, they're some of the most notorious. There's, And then once you get outside the waterfowl field, there's other uh, species that do the same, cuckoos, brown-headed cowbirds, etc. Um, also known as brood parasitism, but it actually occurs by laying the egg in the nest of, a, uh, of, of another individual. You know, this is something that waterfowl researchers have known about for a long time, but it's cool that it's like we're now in this era of old questions are new again, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. because of the new technologies that are being applied to some of these questions to learn even more about the phenomenon and what we could do uh, years ago. Remember, this was written like 25 years ago, I think. Yeah, <laughs> probably, at least. Uh, some, uh, we, we probably decided. And now... We've talked about this with John Eady and a few other folks as well. They're using RFID readers to identify the individual wood ducks that Mm. are going into all these different nest boxes. And they can also use DNA testing to identify the the parents of the, that are producing the eggs and they can, to a degree, never before or not previously really identified, determine how many of these eggs are laid by different hens yeah. or are fathered by different male ducks uh, or geese if in in studies uh, that that may that may be occurring out there so anyway it's just we're learning more about it i've seen some proposals here recently that have come across my desk that are uh, i think red-breasted mergansers will although not a cavity nester will uh, will engage in this same type of of parasitism and uh, there's a study at at LSU looking at the kind of ecological reproductive consequences or benefits of nest parasitism, brood parasitism to, uh, to the host individual. And so it's like there's a lot of, a lot of different studies going on, some basic biology that's being covered in some of these, uh, some of this research and, and other, it's just like, cool. Yeah. Cool, cool and stuff. I think that's a good opportunity, you know, from your perspective, and this is right up your alley for what you do, but really the, science and the technology has changed so much Mm -hmm. in all of this. And I think it's just kind of cool to point out that, you know, we're learning so much more about waterfowl all the time that, you know, like when this article was written 20 years ago, they didn't have some of this technology. So, which is why I'm going to read this next one, although you did not have it on your list, (laughs) but I think it's an awesome fun fact. And I guarantee that this one has probably changed based on technology. So this was called nonstop flight. And the long-distance flying champions of all waterfowl are black brant, which migrate nonstop from coastal Alaska to their wintering grounds in Baja, California, a journey of roughly 3,000 miles. And they do it 
in just 60 to 72 hours. So that is booking it. I mean, that's a long flight. But what's cool is these birds lose almost half their body weight during this marathon flight. Another little fact they threw in here was pintails raised in Alaska in winter in Hawaii make a similar trans-Pacific flight of about 2,000 miles. So the reason why I wanted to point this one out, just because we kind of were alluding to that part of the conversation where, you know, technology has changed so much and benefited waterfowl research and science, that this, I, I don't, do you believe this is still correct or yeah okay. yeah i do because we recently had i think two episodes mm-hmm. on brand yeah and yeah the, the the breeding grounds and the sort of terminal mexico wintering grounds for this species haven't really changed much and, yeah and yeah this i mean it's the way this was originally sort of discovered it's like birds left Eisenbeck Lagoon, and then they show up in in Mexico, and those type of that departure and that arrival were kind of documented in a rudimentary way through people calling one another and saying, "All right, our birds are starting to leave," and then somebody else down in Baja saying, two or three days later, "Well, they're starting to arrive." Now they weren't tracking individual birds, mm-hmm. I don't think. So that's the way that it has changed is we're able to confirm that, if you will, with the tracking of individual birds, either through geolocators or through actual GPS tracking devices. And so, yeah, there's a lot of that that's that's been confirmed. Yeah, it's uh, Alaska, not Alaskan, Atlanta. <laughs> that didn't sound right when I said it. Atlantic Brant take on similar long distance migrations, but they or at least in terms of the total distance, yeah. maybe it's a little bit shorter, you know, when you actually do the math, but they kind of stop midway um, on Southern James Bay uh, and for a, a staging area. and But then they continue on to the Eastern Shore, New York, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Brant are incredible birds. The, when you look at their the shape of their wing, they are... They're built for flight. They're built for long-distance flight, and it's it's pretty cool. They're another species that's getting a fair bit of research attention right now because of some of the vulnerabilities that they are that they're subject to in terms of changing climatic conditions and climate changing environmental conditions on their breeding grounds as well as their wintering grounds. So, and the fact that they are so closely tied to a few areas and that they make these long-distance migrations, you know, it sort of increases their their vulnerability to to some of the challenges that they face. Yeah, those are, they're impressive birds for sure. And they taste, well, Pacific Brant tastes fantastic. I've heard different stories about Atlantic Brant. You just you just went up there and hunted Brant. Did, Eisenbeck awesome. Lagoon, Cold did, Bay, So Alaska. did you eat, eat one we while you were up there? Absolutely. Wonderful. Awesome. Absolutely. That's wonderful. cool. I still have some here with me. Um, well, here in, in Tennessee, yeah. not here in the office. <laughs> <laughs> not here in the studio. <laughs> That's right. uh, so our next little fun fact is called living color. And I'll go ahead and read it real quick. The coloration of waterfowl plumage is produced in two ways, by pigments or by physical structure of the feathers. The two main types of pigments known as melanins, did I say that correctly? Melanins, yeah. Melanins and lipochromes produce black, brown, red, yellow, green, and violet shades. The appearance of blue and iridescent colors results from these pigments in combination with fine feather structures. This explains why some waterfowl feathers appear to change color as they are moved in the sunlight. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add on this other than just to say this is something that a lot of uh, a lot of people probably don't realize is that 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 some of the iridescent colors that they're seeing are structural in basis and not an actual kind of 
color. And, and again, my, my ability to talk about this from a position of expertise kind of falls apart pretty quick because I'm, I'm not good in this, in this area, even talking about it in the correct terms. Uh, the other reason I wanted to kind of talk about this is we'll sort of do a pitch out there to the listeners. If there is someone that is an expert in avian coloration and they want to come on and talk about this yeah. and how these things how these things are produced, how diet plays a role in the coloration. Give us a shout, uh, dupodcast at ducks.org. We'd love to sit, uh, set something up, have you come on and talk with us about uh, your expertise, coloration in birds, bird feathers. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be a great conversation. So the next one we've got is called Taster's Choice. And I'd, I want to figure out how you get to be one of the researchers on this little fact here. But So in the fall, wood ducks largely feed on acorns. You thought it was going to be about how ducks taste, didn't you? Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So in the fall, wood ducks largely feed on acorns and flooded bottomlands. Researchers who conducted a taste test, I did air quotes there too, <laughs> On captive wood ducks found the birds preferred tiny willow oak acorns over larger acorns produced by other oak species. Biologists have found as many as 15 pin oak acorns packed into the gizzard and esophagus of a wood duck. You know, it surprises me that occasionally I hear people still questioning whether wood ducks and mallards eat acorns. Yeah, why would you question that? I, I don't know. It's like, what? why else do you think mallards go into bottomland hardwood, flooded bottomland hardwood forest by the tens or hundreds of thousands or millions, yeah. you know, when you look across the overall landscape, they eat acorns. Mm-hmm. And this was a study, it was actually conducted, I'm guessing this is the one they're referencing, that was conducted at a captive facility down down the road at Mississippi State University. Dr. Rick Kaminsky and some of his uh, graduate students were involved in this one. I'm, I'm familiar with it. And it was actually pretty cool. So the taste test was not like of the birds themselves, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it was a feeding trial. That's the more yeah. more technical way That's to, why to I describe that taste test in yeah. air quotes. And so what they did is they offered uh, wood ducks in captivity the choice of different types of acorns, and they 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 found that acorns consistently preferred these uh, willow oak, maybe water oak, and pin oaks, and uh, and they they avoided the consumption of some of these larger species of, of oaks. I forget which other species they, they tested, but I'm going to guess overcup oak, let's say yeah. bur oak, they're larger, whatever. And they did some additional analyses on the, um, on those acorns to find out, well, exactly why is that? And so they, they ended up preferring, I think there were even some acorns that are about the same size that they, that they avoided but they and Brian Davis, if we ever get him on here, he can tell us all about this. But they ended up doing some analysis of those acorns, and they found that the ones that they preferred are those with a high meat to shell ratio. In other words, the shell on the acorn is really thin, and therefore the there's, has uh, proportionally a lot of a lot of meat. And so, yeah, it makes sense, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, now, how are they able to 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 identify those specific acorns in muddy water or whatever the little feeding trial situation was, that in itself speaks to another fascinating fact about waterfowl and their tactile abilities uh, with their with their bill. It's a subject for another day. But uh, this finding has very important implications for some of the work that Ducks Unlimited and Arkansas Game and Fish Commission are doing right now. And the reason why they are concerned about the decline and the changing forest 
community in some of Arkansas's green tree reservoirs and green tree reservoirs elsewhere is because these most preferred acorns, as determined from these feeding trials, are also the species of oak trees that are among the least water tolerant. And kind of given the long-term flooding of green tree reservoirs and, the, and kind of the, 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 the way they've the length and duration and depth that they've been managed for decades is kind of causing a shift in the forest community composition where that it's, uh, we're seeing a decline in the number of these willow oak and water oak trees and, uh, and nut all oak. And instead it's, it's leading to, uh, it's favoring the more water tolerant, like nut all oak, bur, maybe not bur oak, but at least nut all oak, or I'm sorry, over cup oak, which are not as preferred by, yeah. by water. So this is, a lot of information there, but we've talked about that before, the GTR work in Arkansas. But this research here, sort of foundational to helping us understand the consequences of some of the actions or some of the things that are happening on the landscape today. Cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And I got I got another little fun fact here, and I don't, I'm going to read this when you didn't have it on your list, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Excuse me. So in January of 1999, a tornado and violent hailstorm deposited more than 3,000 dead waterfowl across a seven-mile-long swath in eastern Arkansas. This is, I, I think, I thought it was just kind of a cool fact. You know, somebody had documented this, obviously. But it also goes to show that how, you know, waterfowl, especially migration wintering areas are highly susceptible to impacts of weather and we typically don't think of like tornado and you know, hailstorm thing but i just thought this was pretty cool i wonder how they found these three thousand dead waterfowl they're saying across a seven mile long swath so someone must have just followed the trail of of dead waterfowl it's yeah kind of interesting it it reminds me of and i i kind of reference this these type of observations mentally, um, you know, occasionally my wife will, will ask me, if it's a big storm coming through, it's real windy or it's a tornado or whatever. And my wife will just, you know, kind of say, well, what are all, what are all the birds doing and how do they survive all this type, these, these situations? And I mean, the, the truth is some of them don't, yeah. you know, <laughs> they're, they're out there in the wild having to endure all of the different risk that, that mother nature throws at them. And sometimes they lose. Sometimes these storms um, do get the better of, of waterfowl, whether it be a tornado, whether it be a hailstorm. You hear about it more with hailstorms mm -hmm. than you do with tornadoes. And I, I mean, hailstorms and tornadoes are kind of related, but there's more hailstorms than you can have a lot hailstorm without a tornado. And so it's like almost almost every year you will hear hear some isolated report of a hailstorm causing mortality um, for some number of, of waterfowl. Uh, or other kind of weather events forcing a flock of migrant geese or ducks to the ground, and, mm -hmm. you know. So those types of things aren't aren't unusual either. Dense fog and and a whole host of other things. And and when you get into the passerine migration, all the little songbirds, boy, they encounter even greater risks in flight during migration and um, and and these kind of storms as well for them. So yeah, it's weather can take a toll at some scales on waterfowl, you know, it's not just, not just, um, hunters and, and predators that are responsible for mortality in waterfowl. Yeah. It's just add it to the list yep. of dangers of being a duck, I guess. That's right. Uh, so our next one here is called fowl infidelity. You had this one checked off. I think you, I'm sure you have some, uh, some additional information to add to this, but I'll go ahead and read this little fact. Genetic analysis of mallard broods has shown that many 
clutches include eggs that were fertilized by different drakes. Biologists speculate that hens may actually seek multiple mates to ensure their clutches will be successfully fertilized. This behavior also produces greater genetic variation among broods. Yeah, this is the this kind of gets into the area of the reproductive strategies of waterfowl, mm-hmm. mating systems of waterfowl, and as well as as it references here, genetic analysis that n- n- genetic analysis of this type has been around for a couple of decades, and they've been able to to dig into some of this. It's it's easier to do now. You can get more information from from genetic samples or, f- or from tissue samples, and and so yes, we've we've known that there is there's kind of multiple paternity. In, in duck nest, exactly, you know, is that is that evolutionarily advantageous for the female? Is are the females actively soliciting those kind of extra pair copulations as are as they're called, or are are the are the males being more of the the aggressor and it's totally unwanted behavior um, by the female? Um, I'm not actually sure where the latest studies mm-hmm. what what the latest studies are suggesting on that, but I'm I'm certain there are folks out there that that are kind of deep into the evolutionary theory of this and are studying it and uh, maybe they could again hey. If you're one of those people that, that study this, shoot us an email, dupodcast at ducks.org. These, these type of fun facts are can lead to a little more detailed conversation. Yeah. So we're and, basically using this show to solicit. Uh, there you go. And talk about some of the research that, yeah. that people and the ways that people are trying to study this. You know, I, I it's when you dig into the details of like how they set up the experiments, how they ask the how they they craft the hypothesis and how they collect the data to test that. I mean, that that stuff can be really cool itself, as long as we don't get like too deep. That's the risk with me. It's getting too yeah, deep you get yeah, you get too technical. That's right. You bore me. <laughs> <laughs> so the so, next one here, the, the next little fun fact, and you don't have it checked off on your list, and you probably throwing didn't. some curveballs. Yeah, at me. throwing some curveballs, okay. but but it, this also leads to you know the conversation that this data that we have here, these facts, could potentially be out of date, and we probably need to update this. This one's called Old Birds. And the oldest known duck to be taken by a hunter was a canvasback harvested at the ripe old age of 29. That's an old canvasback. And again, like you said, this this was written 20 years ago, so this obviously could have changed. But then another little fact to go with it, the oldest known goose to be taken by a hunter was a Canada goose of the same age, 29. Again, that's a pretty old goose. So I looked this up. The USGS Bird Banding Lab maintains a table of the oldest known banded birds, you know, recovered banded birds on their website. And it it's, uh, covers a plethora of bird species, not just waterfowl. I didn't find this canvasback record in there. Hmm. The... I think the oldest record that I found for a duck, and maybe I just missed it, was 25, 26, 27, something like that. And I forget which species it was. There were several records, however, of older geese than the 29-year-old Canada goose. I want to say a 34-year-old white front. I mean, that's... Oh, wow. A grandpa white front there. Amazing, you know? Yeah. Just amazing. And... Yeah, so it's really cool. I encourage you to, if you got some time, want to check out the longevity records based on band recoveries for different species of birds. Uh, just do a quick search, USGS Bird Banding Lab, longevity records, something like that. And um, and it'll, it'll take you there. It's pretty cool to, to peruse that. And I think it even kind of 
it has some other information there associated with each of those records. So, um, and the other thing that you'll notice, uh, generally speaking, the larger birds are going to be the ones that live the longer. I mean, there's going to, we're looking at longevity yeah. record type table mm -hmm. here, right? So it's not true statistics of longevity or, or average lifespan, but average lifespan correlates with body size. And so geese, swans, they're going to be the the more longer longer lived uh, species. The smaller birds, green winged teal, blue winged teal, they're going to be at the other end of the of the gradient there. So that's yeah, how long these birds live. That's always cool, cool little thing to study. Yeah, that's awesome. And again, this looks like we're going to have to update some of our uh, facts that we have here. Sure. Uh, so the next one is called a heron whodunit, and I thought that was a a good little name for it. But you know, this kind of reminds me of a story that you told back when we originally started doing this podcast. About, Whatever it is, I made it up. Yeah, you it's probably totally lied. false. Uh, about you had a transmitter or something oh, yeah. on a on a duckling and it got eaten by a coyote and you yeah. could track it yeah. and the coyote's running away and you can track the coyote. It was basically in the coyote's stomach. That's right. Um, but this one... And I later, I later found it in the coyote's poop. <laughs> yeah, found, yeah. found the transmitter. No found kidding, the transmitter. Yep. So this heron who done it. So in one study on the survival of wood duck ducklings, great blue herons ate 10 of the 48 ducklings fitted with radio transmitters. When a researcher discovered that one of the transmitter signals was originating from a live heron, the biologist used his receiver to track the heron to its roost site where it regurgitated the transmitter. So at least you didn't, you know, your coyote didn't regurgitate it. You actually had to dig through the poop. <laughs> I didn't really dig through the poop. Maybe I did. You I did. guess I did. You did. So this factoid, this fun foul fact, comes from our good friend down the road, Dr. Brian Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, studies, has done a lot of research on wood ducks. And I actually remember, I was at Mississippi State when he was doing the research in which he discovered this. And at least I'm, I'd be 99% certain that this is the the that Brian's study is the one that's being referenced here with this little fact. And it was what he discovered is, is yeah, exactly as you described, it was this one heron that was responsible for eating these ducklings. And so Brian concluded that this heron had developed a search image or just kind of in more layman's terms, just kind of figured out that, hey, there's going to be a little tiny ducklings come popping out of these 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 structures. Let mm -hmm. me go sit on them and watch for the ducklings to come out of there. It's like a feeding so station. The the heron became a specialist uh, on wood duck ducklings. That was at the Noxabee National Wildlife Refuge there in, um, in East Central Mississippi. At least I'm pretty sure that's where that one... It, Brian's had several studies across the several study sites, but I think that was happening there at Noxabee. That's also where he had a lot of um, cottonmouths eating some of these yeah. ducklings. I mean, ducklings have a tough go of it, man. Oh, yeah, everything's true. We've talked Dogs, about that before. Bass. Yeah. All right, so I've got a couple more, and we'll we'll go ahead and get out of here on this. So one is the speed record. So the fastest duck ever recorded was a red-breasted merganser that attained a top airspeed of 100 miles per hour while being pursued by an airplane. Uh, this eclipsed the previous speed record held by a canvas back clocked at 72 miles per hour. Blue-wing and green-wing teal, thought by many hunters to be the fastest ducks, are actually among the slowest, having a typical flight speed of only 30 miles per hour. So, you know, that we've talked about that before, especially when we did the blue-wing teal species profile. You know, they're acrobatic, they're small, everyone seems to think that they're going really fast, but really, you know, the facts show that 
those are actually some of the slowest ducks out there, especially compared to that canvas back going 72 miles per hour. That's, yeah, that's pretty serious. Can't argue with the facts. Can't argue with the facts. But it's just, be, and I think what that demonstrates is just because a bird is the fastest doesn't mean it's the hardest to hit, you know, to shoot. Um, to connect with because I mean I last week or two weeks ago we were hunting in Arkansas and we had a flock of green wing teal come in and you see them they circle they come back you get ready get ready and then you raise up to shoot and I mean I can still see it right as three times in a row I pulled the trigger as soon as I pulled the trigger the birds moved it's like mm-hmm. somebody else was shooting and they were like shooting right before me and so when they would shoot yeah. the bird would zip and they would I mean just like bam 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 every time I pulled the trigger I'm like yep missed 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 knew it you like, flock it. shot him that, no I didn't I was singled on one bird uh, I, excuses. <laughs> I, I was excuses. I had one bird but every time I pulled the trigger right before I pulled the trigger that moment it moved I think it was because the guy next to me yeah. was shooting maybe a split second before me, causing those birds to to zig and zag. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, you won. You uh, won. <laughs> Save your ammo. That's right. So in terms of whether this is still true, I think for the red-breasted merganser, I'm not aware of any more recent kind of speed record, mm-hmm. so, so to speak. We did talk with Mike Casazza a few years ago about, some of their use of this like high high resolution GPS tracking information to uh, to measure the speed of of pintails. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if they had any other ducks that they were looking at, but in that in that paper that they produced, there were like several other um, records from uh, of flight speeds by by other waterfowl, and it talked about. That table contained sort of how it was determined. Some is determined by radar. Some's determined by sort of chasing, either in a plane or a um, or a vehicle. But you know the ones that their GPS based measurements are that they're starting to get now. I think uh, you, you can have a little bit more confidence in those. Some of these where you're like chasing it with a plane or chasing it with a vehicle. It's like, well, is that okay? Maybe that's a speed record. But yeah, it's, what does that really mean? So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and and again, this is another. Fact. This is another. It's a fun fact. Yeah, uh, this is another red-breasted merganser. Another go. good example of technology being able, like you mentioned, you know, the different transmitters, things like that, that they can now have on these birds to really, you know, probably say exactly how fast some of these birds are going. So, pretty cool stuff. All right, let's do one more, and then we'll wrap it up. I wanted to do this one because it, I just thought it's just a really, really cool fact. Considering we're referring to these as amazing waterfowl facts, this I thought they. Pretty fun foul facts. Fun, you can call it whatever fun you want. Fun foul facts. So this one's called season traveler or fantastic foul facts. That's a good alliteration there. So season traveler, a pintail banded in 1940 in Athabasca, Alberta, survived until January 1954 when it was shot near Nacuspana, Mexico, roughly 3,000 miles away. So if this pintail migrated between these two locations every year throughout its known lifetime, the bird would have logged nearly 80,000 air miles. That's pretty impressive. It's really impressive. Now, that's what I call an amazing waterfowl fact. You're still not going with me on that, are you? Fantastic foul fact. Fantastic foul fact. All right. We'll go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, and and we are an, another thing that that GPS tracking devices are allowing us to to 
to see more often are some of these amazing feats of, of waterfowl. There was a pintail, I think, that we've seen in social media here recently, a record of a pintail traveling from, I forget where it was marked, maybe, I don't know, but it went like from Japan, maybe it was marked in Alberta, went to Japan, then came back up, and then the next year mm -hmm. migrated south to Louisiana, or I may have that wrong or something. I may have those reversed, but it's just incredible. Yeah. And we're able to document these intercontinental movements. Now, we've known they've occurred because yeah. you get band recoveries and all that type of stuff, but you wouldn't, from band recoveries alone, you would not have been able to determine that that bird went across multiple flyways because mm -hmm. you only get a banding location, typically, unless you get lucky and recapture, you only get a banding location and a recovery location. So from that standpoint, let's say it was recovered in, I don't know where it was, if it, let's say it was recovered in Japan, but it was marked in Alberta, you would have only had those two points and that would have documented intercontinental travel, but it would not have documented sort of intercontinental and interflyway travel. You know, so it's, these GPS tracking devices are, are just putting data to the things that we suspected or otherwise kind of already knew from one reason, in one way or another, uh, knew were, were happening out there. So just amazing birds. Yeah, and, and another good, uh, you know, excuse to reference cool science and, and research that's going on. There you go. Um, but, so, Mike, this has been great. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, maybe we'll try and get another amazing waterfowl facts. Or what is it? Fowl fun facts fun, show. Fun fowl facts or fun, fantastic fowl facts. There you go. Fantastic fowl facts. <laughs> we will try this one more time. Fantastic fowl facts. You got it. Cool, Mike. This has been awesome. Thanks, Chris. I've, I've enjoyed. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for coming on and sharing some amazing waterfowl facts. I mean, fowl fun facts. Fun fowl facts. I'd like to thank Chris Isaac, our producer, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Fantastic fowl facts. Fantas you said fun, fantastic fowl facts. I don't know. I don't think I ever said four. Fantastical fowl facts. Jesus. I just said fun fowl facts or Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. 
Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 